Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing on this Monday. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, tens of thousands of people march against Occupy Central. We'll look at that. Alcohol prices up to a record for the second straight week. And the biggest mainland developer, China Vanka, reports slower earnings growth than last year. Our guests this morning include Tobias Hexter of Chinese University on Markets and Volatility. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, will be along to look at global events that impact on Asia. And Wei Gu from the Wall Street Journal will be talking about China's efforts to prevent money leaking from the economy. And to get us started, here are a few thoughts. We reject Occupy, uh, Occupy Central and we hope we have a true election uh, in 2017. I support the democratic policy, but their action in occupying Central is stupid, absolutely stupid. They should work with Beijing, not against. Some people there out on the march. Hong Kong people want peace. Hong Kong people want democracy. And Hong Kong people are not afraid to come out and be seen to be for peace and democracy. Robert Chow, the organizer of the anti-Occupy March. Again, tens of thousands of people uh, turned out to show their disdain for the civil disobedience campaign, Occupy Central, which we don't know when uh, it will uh, begin. We'll have details on this a bit later. And on the other side of the world, people are asking the question, does the unrest in Missouri show what happens when a spark is applied to a poverty-riddled area? Barry Wood in a moment. We'll also look at the U.S. economy. Is it on the mend or stalling. We, we did seem to enter the third quarter with a little less gusto. Uh, there was little change in retail sales in the month of July, and it was the weakest uh, reading of the year, save for a decline in January. That's Vince Gawley, Bloomberg editor on the economy. Retail sales weak, but maybe not telling the entire story. Factories in July were the busiest in uh, five months, uh, uh, with production rising 1%. And let's uh, talk about the nation's motor vehicle plants. Cars rolled off the assembly lines at the fastest rate in 14 years. Odd that. Factories and auto sales strong, but uh, overall spending weak. He explains here why it could be happening. Part of the issue there is... These figures aren't adjusted for changes in prices. So when you have falling gasoline prices, you know, um, these great deals on cars and discounting it at retailers such as Macy's, the dollar value of sales isn't as great, although Americans may actually be out there shopping. So, yes, the number was weak, but maybe not as weak as the unchanged reading would suggest. Our first guest is Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So talk about the economy, um, really, I guess, in the context of that week of violence in, in Ferguson. Uh, has poverty, Barry, you know, moved out to the suburbs? That's one question. And also, is this about poverty or is it uh, strictly about racism? Well, I think, in fact, we don't know. And uh, you're always quick to judge. I mean, we are in the Internet age and everything wants an instant answer. Uh, the historians, the sociologists will have to tell us after the fact what's really going on. I always remember that uh, Eric Hoffer, the longshoreman in San Francisco of 50 years ago, always said that it's when things are getting better that people are most restive and riot. So, you know, look, this is a middle-class suburb. This is not the poorest part of St. Louis. So, yes, the unemployment rate is high there, but I don't think, Brian, we can say that the unrest in Ferguson had anything to do with the poverty rate. 
Okay. Um, I heard your excellent interview earlier this morning uh, with Mike Weeks on Hong Kong Today, so we don't need to retrace a lot of that ground. But I did see this Brookings Institution report that said that the poor are growing twice as fast in the suburbs as they are in the cities. Uh, so let's go back to this, whether or not uh, perhaps uh, this area, um, you know, maybe poverty there is playing a role. Yes, I, I didn't want to run away from your question. You're clearly right. As uh, a lot of the inner cities have uh, emptied out and people have moved into the suburbs, uh, that culture has moved along with them. Now, we know that the black unemployment rate is considerably higher than the white unemployment rate. So poverty is a factor. I don't want to be misunderstood about that. And yes, poverty is becoming much more of a suburban Phenomenon. We see that here in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. used to be 70% black. Now it's roughly maybe 60% black. Blacks are moving to the suburbs. Now, in Washington, we're somewhat unique because we have government people, the, the people who are in the suburbs, the black people in the suburbs are, are doing probably well, better than almost any black sector in the United States. But St. Louis is depressed. Let's not forget that. The Mississippi River goes through there, but uh, that uh, city has not uh, seen the job growth that uh, some parts of the country have experienced. Because we've talked a lot on this program about the gap between rich and poor, and I, I take uh, your word that uh, this is not really a poor community, Ferguson, small uh, suburb of St. Louis, uh, but actually, as you say, more middle class. But it does raise the question about you know, the ultimate result, uh, whether or not you get social unrest from the gap between rich and poor, um, you know, is, is that something that you fear in the United States? Or again, do you think this really has more of a, a racial side to it? Well, I think the answer is yes and yes. Certainly there's a racial component that's very powerful here, and it's just beneath the surface. And when you see this kind of uh, situation arise and people talk and the Internet gets a hold of it, it, uh, it uh, spreads very, very quickly. And then you've got, uh, you know, the television, cable television, and people getting very excited about this. And we're not that far away from the Trayvon Martin shooting in Florida. So this, this catches on. But, uh, yes, I think that the, there is clearly a link between young black men who have a very high unemployment rate, and the fact that um, uh, there's there's not a lot for these folks to do. Um, it's it's a complex problem. It's not over yet, but clearly it's been bungled by the local authorities. Okay, so let's pick up on that last point. Uh, the policing initially was aggressive with uh, people turning out in, uh, or police turning out in riot gear. And I heard you mention earlier that, uh, you know, that the initial response uh, was um, greatly rejected by people. Uh, what are some of the things that the police didn't get right? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, this community has shifted in its racial composition so that there were very few blacks on the police force. And that was a problem. So the people who came out and uh, were on the streets, uh, it was seen as white versus black. And that's not a situation that policing wants to be in. I think fur further, this uh, video of the uh, alleged robbery attempt nearby that involved the victim who was shot dead, clearly that was totally bungled because then the local authorities were saying, well, hold it, the policeman who shot uh, this man was in fact unaware 
this uh, this riot. So you raises the question: Well, what was going on then? What was what was the shooting all about? So it's it's complex and it's very troublesome. Yes, uh, people were upset by that uh, because even if this uh, man was involved in a robbery, he was unarmed uh, and probably didn't deserve to die, even if he uh, did uh, rob that mini store. Um, and also. Absolutely. Also, I had read that, um, uh, you know, that uh, something you alluded to earlier about people turning up in in riot gear that was prompted after 9-11 uh, that, um, you know, it looked more like a military setting rather than the police Absolutely. being a civilian force. Uh, and on the side of the people, it sort of had this confrontational element. Uh, so we seem to be learning and then forgetting and then relearning. Uh, if you look at the former police chief in Seattle, uh, he was greatly troubled by what happened uh, over the, the past week in uh, Ferguson. Because he said he made, he made many mistakes that he felt that people didn't learn from. Well, that's, that's obvious. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a disaster. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, first of all, you've got a young man who's dead, and you've got uh, all kinds of damage done, and you've got uh, a blot on uh, the whole St. Louis community. So this is uh, something that, uh, regrettably, is America 2014. Yeah, and it has dominated the news flow over the past uh, several Absolutely. several days. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about the economy. Um, retail sales weak, consumer confidence not very good, but factories humming along. Um, it's a little bit tricky to explain. It is tricky. Um, I'm, I'm working on the uh, premise right now that the lingering effects of the Great Recession are greater than we think. And uh, let me start uh, by just mentioning uh, Stanley Fisher, who gave a speech in uh, Sweden uh, over a week ago in which he said there are three reasons the U.S. economy is faltering or not doing very well. One, housing remains weak. Two, the um, problem of uh, the global economy slowing down. And secondly, we're seeing, uh, third, we're seeing weaker exports in the United States. And we're seeing further a, uh, a diminished uh, spending by the federal government. The, the, the fiscal impulse is negative. All of these things add up to the fact that we've gotten slow growth. And it's a very mixed bag, as you just said. Manufacturing is recovering at a lower rate. By the way, the auto industry is about uh, one-third smaller than it used to be before the bankruptcy in Detroit. So, you know, this is, it, thank goodness, it's coming back. The wages are lower than they used to be. And construction is coming back, Brian, but it's not doing very well. I visited a construction site here in Washington this week, they said that the wage is down $5 from what it was per hour just five years ago. So in other words, they're starting people at 10 and $12 an hour, and this is union. So yeah. it's mixed, very mixed. One of the interesting aspects of Mr. Fisher's uh, speech was he suggested that some of these uh, problems in the U.S. economy could be structural. And, you know, Janet Yellen, he, her, <laughs> Mr. Fisher's boss as the chair of the Fed, uh, she has been saying that this is mostly cyclical and hasn't wanted to go that route of uh, structural or secular problems with the economy. Does it set up an interesting dynamic between chair and vice chair? It does, Brian. It's interesting. Look, Stan Fisher is an eminent economist. I mean, you know, people respect him, but he, as you said, is the vice chairman. Miss Yellen will give a speech on Friday at Jackson Hole. That will be very interesting. Everyone wants to know what's your feeling about 2015 in terms of interest rates, and what about the question you raise? Is it structural or is it just a cyclical problem? So we'll find out, maybe. 
Okay. Let me bring in another uh, comment here from uh, the Bloomberg uh, Economy editor. Um, and uh, he was talking about the factories being rather busy. So we get here a little bit more from Vince Gauley at Bloomberg. Demand's been so strong that plants that typically shut down to retool for the introduction of new models were forced to stay open to keep uh, building the current lineup. Other manufacturers are flexing their muscle, too. Uh, Makers of business equipment showed a nice advance, and so did uh, consumer products manufacturers like furniture, appliances, home electronics. Construction material makers were also busy, very busy. So it all uh, it all looks good. I mean, the caveat is the consumer. As you know, we've uh, had some pretty doggone good job growth this year, but the wages haven't followed through. So Janet Yellen looks more at the wages, uh, Barry, and the Fed is kind of around the middle of next year, perhaps uh, around the time that they might think about raising interest rates. But one of the Fed presidents, uh, uh, Jim Bullard, was uh, speaking over the weekend. He said more like the end of the first quarter next year. Um, we have a lot of things to worry about here in Hong Kong, and one of them is <laughs> interest rates and, you know, whether the U.S. economy is doing well um, on rates. uh can you add anything to that? No, I can't. I can say, isn't it amazing that the tenure is at 2.34%, and it was at 3% at the beginning of the year. So we're talking about rising interest rates while the tenure rate comes down. So it's a very curious world. Okay, and um, you've got the 10-year the, the bund yield is down to 96 basis points. Isn't that amazing? What, what, Isn't what is, that amazing? What story is, uh, is this uh, telling us? Well, the, the story is that Europe is flat on its, uh, on its back. They get to their knees now and again, but they can't get up. And when the German economy sputters and it declined in the latest three-month period, I mean, Europe's in a mess. And uh, that is a German phenomenon because they're the ones who said, if you want to keep this currency uh, common for all 18 users of the euro, then you're all going to have to take austerity. Well, look where austerity has got us in Europe. Europe is down and out. Okay. And uh, China has slowed and, uh, you know, the U.S. is trying to move ahead. It's, uh, it's a curious world. Let me add this uh, element to our discussion, Brian. I talked to a banker this week. I said, look, all the people who want to get into the housing market can't because you're too strict on your, on your lending standards for people who want to buy first-time homes. He said, yeah, but that's why we're doing so well with autos, because autos is a secured loan, and we can make it out for 60 months. We've got a car, and the auto loan sector is booming. It's making a lot of money for the banks, and that's adding some of that production that Vince was speaking about in terms of autos. Yeah. Okay, very interesting setup. We'll talk again uh, next week, Barry. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Well, let's return briefly to the anti-Occupy Central march yesterday here in Hong Kong. Some participants said that they were pressured to march, but the former chairman of Ocean Park, Alan Zeman, said most people there were clear about why they were marching. When you have so many people, people come from so many different walks of life. The majority of the people know why they came. Uh, it was very hot in Victoria Park. To get out of Victoria Park took many hours. I didn't stay with the VIP section. I stayed with the normal people, and it was very, very difficult. And so I believe the people really knew why they were there. Some people maybe didn't, but the majority really did. Alan Zeman will have our full report just after 830 
In other business news, China Vanke, the mainland's largest property developer, Rye Revenue, has posted slower profit growth in the first half of the year that compared with robust gains uh, during the same period last year. RTHK's Robert Kemp has more. Net profits edged up 5.5% year-on-year to 4.81 billion yuan, equivalent to about 782 million US dollars. The growth was sharply down from a 22% increase in net profits in the first half of 2013. However, the Shenzhen-based company seems to have recovered a bit from its bleak first quarter. In the January-March period, it posted a 5.23% year-on-year decline in profits, its first quarterly profit decline since 2002. The company said that first-half real estate sales across China had cooled from last year, but still grew steadily when compared with figures in 2012. Despite the decline, the company has seen a nearly 21% increase in sales revenue, with small apartments accounting for as much as 92% of the housing sold on the free market during the first six months. Mainland stocks listed in Hong Kong have rallied 21% from a March low after the government deployed targeted stimulus in efforts to keep growth up at 7.5%. Meantime, options traders are betting that Citic Pacific will extend the second best rally on the Hang Seng Index this year, that amid an expansion into banking and stockbroking as Chinese policymakers open up the financial markets. We're joined by Tobias Hexter, adjunct associate professor at Chinese University's Hong Kong uh, Finance Trading Academy. Tobias, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So it's a good time, maybe, with um, volatility down pretty low for people to look at options. I know it scares a lot of people, but uh, hopefully you can make them understand uh, how you can hedge your positions and maybe even make some money using options. Uh, is now a good time to look at options, given that they must be cheap? Yeah, most definitely, because the interesting thing, and that alludes a bit to what uh, Barry came with, if you look at the 10-year yields being down considerably, it almost looks now that stress or panic in markets is reflected more in a flight to the safety of the boons and other 10-year instruments or the expectations of central bank intervention, and not as much in what we dare to say expecting of movement and mayhem in markets. And that's where the volatility comes in. Volatility, the prices of options, is nothing else than to what extent do we expect very large movements in the future. When people expect limited movements, the price of option tends to be a bit more cheap. And to make this one, uh, to cut it off, if you look outside and the things we've discussed, it's not that great out there. But somehow it didn't connect into prices of options in the market, which are distinctly low, which makes it a potentially interesting proposition. So it is an interesting question. Why do you think volatility is kind of um, rearing its head only in that when people get nervous, they just buy more government bonds and they don't sell a lot of stocks down? Yeah, and that is the implicit guarantee that global central banks are giving. And that is that if something would happen, you get either an increase in stimuli, you get a decrease in tapering or any other kind of safety net out there. So what the running theme is now is that if there is a market event, it becomes a buying opportunity. I think if you look at the July 17th, the MH17 day, when also fighting in Gaza commenced, there was a very brief reaction. But as soon as there was a stop in the barrage of bad news, it wasn't even solved or anything yet. There was this big recovery again. People are betting on protection from central banks and therefore they dare to plunge into stocks early. And you think this is dangerous? I would say for short-term traders, it might work, but I would say it's relatively silly if you're a bit of a longer-term investor because you could still play these kind of movements, 
but you could protect yourself in derivatives because these are on the same premise of central bank intervention. They're relatively underpriced. When you look at Hong Kong stocks now, we've had this pretty strong rally in both um, Hong Kong shares and China listed shares. So China shares listed in Hong Kong. When you look at the skew between the options bets, uh, the call bets versus the put bets, um, where are they now? And does it in any way tell you about the future? What you can see in markets, again, is that difference in complacency. Um, if you look at, if you have an option, if I have the right to sell shares, let's say 5% lower than where we currently are, that is in fact the most clear insurance policy because it will only kick in if something really bad happens. That's what tends to be called skew or downside. On the other hand, you can also look at options, a right to buy shares 5% higher And they, of course, are a very, very positive bet. If you now look in more markets, but particularly in Asia, compared to the rest, if you look at the difference between what extra do I need to pay for the downside insurance, because those are the scary movements, compared to options at the price or even higher, that degree of panic, that degree how much am I prepared to pay for insurance, is very low in Asia. And oddly enough, it's still quite high in the U.S., And that, in my opinion, gives a bit of an idea that still Asian investors tend to be quite bullish. So so what are some bets that you're looking at now? I know you run a hedge fund in addition to teaching this stuff, um, but it's uh, it's exciting to you know hear about some of the plays that you're making. With volatility this low, would you just be vo- buying volatility? You expect it to go higher. The problem is that even though I would say volatility is low um, – I cannot give an absolute bet. And you also have to be careful that you are playing against central banks. What I do say is that if you look at different markets, you see differences. In my opinion, and then I won't dwell too much on the position I'm running, but there are Asian markets where volatility is underpriced. Not only in absolute terms, it's very cheap, but also if I would compare to other markets. That's where I see opportunities. One of the markets I now like is, for example, a thing like Nikkei, which has a very big macroeconomic uh, factor behind it with Abenomics. It's always tricky, and it's relatively cheap. So I always need to be careful when I hear you say that you like a market. Do you, do you like it um, from the positive side, or do you think it sets up uh, for making money on the, on the downside? Well, the good thing, which makes me a bit happy trading volatility... In the past, it always was markets go down and people get scared. So you only had volatility in bad times, which means I was happy when people were not. What you see in markets like Japan or in general now, if you have a big movement upwards, people also see, hey, it's movement, it's interesting. And the same volatility could rise. And in Japan, for example, if you looked at last year, the whole Abenomics rally was actually a big volatility event to the upside. Yeah. Okay. Um, we haven't talked about Europe very much. Um, what do those low bond yields, uh, Bund yields uh, in Germany at 96 uh, basis points, uh, what does that tell you about the, the global in, uh, environment? Yeah, I fully agree with Barry. It's, it's a scary, I would say it's a red flag. And the difference is, if you look between Europe and Japan, that I think Japan went into this scary deflationary situation a lot stronger than Europe. And I think in Europe now we're getting uh, a very – in Europe, a Japan-like scenario where we do have high debts, increasing, stalling economy, 
we do have a uh, shrinking of the population. Um, so we have a situation. It starts to become look a bit like Japan. That's not good. Okay, Tobias, stay with this uh, for a moment. I wanted to uh, break up this rather heavy section uh, with just a little bit of fun. Uh, If you're thinking of heading back to school for a career change, I'm speaking uh, to our listeners here, this may be the way to go. Becoming a doctor of chocolate at Britain's Cambridge University. AP correspondent Kyle McKinnon reports. It's almost too sweet to be true, studying the fundamentals of chocolate. Cambridge is looking for a doctoral student to find ways of keeping chocolate-based food from melting in warm climates. You may have already figured out the hard way, as I have, that the best quality chocolate goes soft around 93 degrees Fahrenheit, meaning it melts in your pockets. Your solution to the age-old problem could help the world's top 10 chocolate companies, which last year raked in sales of about $85 billion. There's just this one drawback, though, the part about learning from chemical engineering, geotechnical engineering, and soft matter physics experts. So that's uh, chocolate. Uh, And if that wasn't fun, uh, here's Humphrey advising Sir Desmond. Didn't you read the Financial Times this morning? Never do. Well, you're a banker. Surely you read the Financial Times. Can't understand it. (laughs) Full of economic theory. Why'd you buy it? Oh, you know, it's part of the uniform. Uh... (laughs) Took me 30 years to understand Keynes' economics. Then when I just cottoned on, everyone started getting hooked on these new monetarist ideas. You know, I Want to Be Free by Milton Shulman. Milton Friedman. Why are they all called Milton? Anyway, I've only got as far as Milton Keynes. Maynard Keynes. I'm sure there's a Milton Keynes. Yes, a little bit from Yes Minister. I'm joined by Tobias Hexter, adjunct associate professor at Chinese University. Uh, so, Tobias, uh, we've got the news coming up in just a couple of minutes. Um, just give us um, your sense of what some really good strategies would be over the next six months for people to think about. I'd say when you look at derivatives, you should look at it defensively. And if you think prices of options, of, if you think that the market is be poised for some further upside. I would suggest just buy like a six-month-out call option. What does it do? It gives you the right to buy stock at a certain price. So if stock continues to go further upwards, you benefit. On the other hand, if the market or if your prediction is wrong, market tanks, the only thing you lose is your fixed investment in the option. And that's where these relatively low volatilities come in. That option, that premium you need to pay in order to get this bet, that one is relatively low. So uh, you would advise people mainly to think about uh, buying options as insurance, a way to hedge a portfolio, or as, um, as a way to make money? Yeah, in a way, I would see it as a hedged way to play either upside. Because if I buy stock outright, I don't have to pay the premium. But if it goes against me, my losses could be severe. This would be a way, if you are positive on the market anyway, this might be a relatively safe way to play that. In the end, I would think, if I look outside, the clouds are dark, so I'm not that positive. So if I would go into the market, because markets tend to be supported by central banks, I would like to tread a bit safely, either by protecting the stock I have with a put, or maybe buying a call instead of having stock. Okay, Tobias, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Tobias Hexter, adjunct associate professor at Chinese University's Finance Trading Academy. 
Markets are generally higher now. The Nikkei in Australia and in Seoul, the Kospi, all the markets up about around one-fifth of one percent. Weather today expecting mainly fine conditions, hot, some isolated showers in the afternoon, and the uh, maximum temperature should be 32 degrees, maximum humidity up around 90 percent. The news coming up next, and then more of Money for Nothing. A31, the news with Samantha Butler. Kurdish sources say their Peshmerga fighters have broadly taken control of a strategic dam in the north of Iraq from Islamist militants. They say they're trying to clear the area of mines and booby traps that have been left there by fighters from the Islamic State. The Kurdish sources say they expect to take full control of the dam later today. Their ground offensive has been coordinated with U.S. forces, which provided air cover. The outgoing Iraqi Foreign Minister Hoshya Zabari, who's a senior Kurdish leader, welcomed the American involvement. Their intervention was critical by airstrikes, and I think the U.S. administration, when authorizing these airstrikes, they really were very effective to stop the progress of ISIS, to stabilize the front, to bring back the confidence, increase the morale, let's say, of the Peshmerga, of the people, to stand up to them, and the coordination is going on very well. They have people on the ground that they are coordinating with our military commanders, so the coordination is perfect. Survivors of a tourist boat that sank in Indonesia say they believe the vessel struck a coral reef before going down east of Bali. At least 10 foreigners and five Indonesian crew members are missing after the boat sank while heading from Lombok to Komodo Island. People rescued include citizens of New Zealand, England, Spain, France, Germany and the Netherlands. Here's one survivor, Tony Lawton. We think the boat had a reef on the day that we left Port Lombok. Uh-uh. It had a coral reef. Uh, yes. And it floated off at high tide. Uh-uh. And so maybe that was a cause for a boat to sink. We don't know. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, 8.33. You're listening to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Guests coming up in the next half hour, we'll be speaking with Wei Gu, uh, editor of China Wealth and Luxury at the Wall Street Journal, talking about the possibility of capital flight uh, from China and what the authorities are doing uh, to preclude that. Also, some of the stories that we have been following this morning, tens of thousands of people marching against Occupy Central. Also, Hong Kong home prices, according to Sandline, up to a record for the second straight week. And the biggest mainland developer, China Vanke, reported slower earnings growth than last year. We do get um, China property prices out at 9.30 this morning. So that will be one of the things that um, investors will be featuring and looking at. And, of course, people also wondering about these very low bond yields right across the globe with the 10-year bond yield down to 96 basis points and uh, the yield on the 10-year treasury down under 2.4%. 
Back to the news now. Tens of thousands of people marching from Victoria Park to Central yesterday. They're demonstrating against Occupy Central's proposed civil disobedience campaign. Somewhere between 193,000 on the top side and 79,000 on the uh, lower side turned out for the rally. It was organized by the Alliance for Peace and Democracy. Uh, The organizers encouraged marchers to carry paper flowers to leave in the area between Shader Garden and Statue Square as a symbol of peace. Executive Councillor Fanny Law left one there in the morning, as did Basic Law Committee member Maria Tam. We're here because we believe that um, Hong Kong people would like to see that we can have universal suffrage for the chief executive in 2017, and we believe the way to achieve it is to work within our constitutional framework and local legislation in a peaceful manner so that the well, democracy that we can achieve could be long-lasting. Basic Law Committee member Maria Tam. The march followed the same route taken by the annual July 1st pro-democracy protests. The police came under criticism for their handling of that march, with protesters alleging that officers had held them up for hours in heavy rain. The spokesman for the Alliance for Peace and Democracy, the organizers of the march yesterday, Robert Chow, said the event was proof that a procession could be held smoothly. I personally walk, start walking at 1.30. I arrive in Central in one hour and 25 minutes. And it shows that if people take the marches seriously and not held things up, it can be done in about one and a half hours. So I, I hope what we have done today is an illustration uh, to everyone who's going to do marches from now on so that um, you, know, you don't have to hold people back Uh, keep them under the sun for too long and make everybody suffer. Now, we can do it in one and a half hours. I'm sure everybody else can. Alan Zeman, the former chairman of Ocean Park, was among those who did march. He said that he did so because he was important for what he called the silent majority to show Beijing what Hong Kong really wants and to demonstrate that the city is a peaceful place. Mr. Zeman also dismissed reports that many of those who took part in the rally weren't clear about why they were marching. When you have so many people, people come from so many different walks of life. The majority of the people know why they came. Uh, It was very hot in Victoria Park. To get out of Victoria Park took many hours. I didn't stay with the VIP section. I stayed with the normal people, and it was very, very difficult. And so I believe the people really knew why they were there. Some people maybe didn't, but the majority really did. The pro-Beijing Federation of Trade Unions was one of the chief backers of the anti-Occupy rally. Its vice president, Dr. Pan Pei-Chiu, was among the marchers yesterday. Our Hugh Chiverton asked Dr. Pan what message the protests sent out. I think that uh, March uh, did send out a very clear signal. Uh, I, I think most people, I mean, the, all the people I know, they, they know what they are marching for. And it mainly is uh, they want to say no right, to this Occupy Central business. right? So... Uh, of course, Hong Kong people like to have uh, democracy and they want to have a system which truly uh, uh, reflect their, their, their choices, their preferences. But I think that um, the overwhelming majority of people living here want this to be done peacefully right? and in a way that, uh, that I mean, that, uh, that won't disturb our normal daily life. Right? So I think uh, people who marched yesterday, they were mainly against uh, Occupy Central. 
Yeah, the, uh, they were mainly against Occupy Central. Um, what about the composition of, of the march? Is there reports of, for example, mainland tourists to, taking part, uh, according to some reports, in large numbers? Did, were you aware of that? Uh, I'm not aware of that. Uh, even as we uh, march along, I think uh, uh, we see that, of course, yeah, it's true that uh, the say people who march uh, mainly come from different uh, organizations, uh, uh, groups. Or groups of people, um, but I don't see a lot of uh, tourists uh, in uh, And also, I think I noticed that there were quite quite a uh, sizable uh, uh, number of, uh, say, people from, say, from the, the uh, uh, say, uh, in the, uh, the, the Indian subcontinent. I mean, uh, people from from South Asia. So uh, that I think is it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, very uh, uh, encouraging. So I think, but, but I don't see a lot of tourists from from the. Main there were reports that a large number of South Asians came from Shenzhen. In fact, uh, this I don't know. Maybe there are there are some people coming from Shenzhen, right? but I, 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 the people I know uh, that uh, that were around us, uh, I, I think that most of them are people from Hong Kong. Yeah. Do you think um, perhaps the turnout uh, should serve to reassure Beijing that, uh, as you say, the majority of people in Hong Kong don't want conflict with the central people government and, and therefore Hong Kong can be trusted uh, to, to elect someone, uh, a moderate, and that there is no need for uh, the uh, kind of uh, elaborate nominating procedure which people are talking about now? Um, I think that uh, at the national level... Uh, that uh, say the Chinese government do want uh, to feel reassured that uh, the people uh, that uh, becomes uh, that Hong Kong people elect right uh, to be the chief executive should be someone that uh, is not who is not setting out to to upset or to to say to cause uh, trouble right to the to the central government. I think this is a kind of reassurance they need, but. To have that assurance, as, uh, reassurance, and, and as a first step, I think that it is likely that the central government would favour a system which is uh, more conservative, as, as such. But I think that also uh, you have noticed that the central government has mentioned that uh, after taking that first step, right, further developments uh, is, is possible. Right? So I, I think that is an encouraging sign. I think uh, people in Hong Kong. Uh, have to understand the kind of sentiment, right? Uh, and, uh, well, of course, I mean, uh, people, say, in Hong Kong would like to have uh, a more, say, uh, um, open system, right? But on the other hand, I think we also have to understand the, the sentiment of central government, right? But do you think that people in Hong Kong would elect somebody who would oppose the central government? Uh, this actually... I think I have mentioned in the other programs uh, before that um, this is actually quite possible, right? Because, for example, like the, uh, say the, the reason. But, but you uh, claim, uh, I'm sorry, but you claim majority support for the for the uh, for, for groups who don't want this kind of uh, a conflict. That that is correct. Yeah. Well, yeah, then, so, in, in in an open election, your side yes. would win. Yes, that's what I say, right? Because. Well, it's sometimes very difficult to know, uh, say, the background of some of these candidates, right? Just for example, like the, the recent uh, scandal that was exposed, right, about, uh, say, donations and, and things like that. 
I think a lot of people were not aware of that until this was uh, exposed, right? So I think uh, it is quite important that, uh, say, that uh, people who have a uh, hidden agenda, right, should be blocked from the, from the chief executive uh, election. But apart from that, I think, I mean, the system, what we would like to see is to have more different types of uh, people with different types of political uh, inclinations or, or uh, to, to come to, 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 to stand for, for uh, the election. Right. Do you think it's likely now that the Occupy Central will go ahead? Uh, personal. My personal view is that it is still likely. Right? It's still likely. And uh, that, that is why people yesterday uh, came out. There's so many people who came out. Uh, they want to say no right, to these people. But I think that we have to uh, prepare for the quite likely possibility that Occupy Central will happen. Yeah. Do you think it's worthwhile for the Democrats to continue talking to um, the liaison office? I think that um, uh, to have any meaning right, for, to a conversation, that people from both sides or all sides should uh, adopt an open mind, right, an open attitude. Right? I want to see this happening uh, say, uh, say between the central government and also the local pan-democrats. Uh, I think some pan-democrats are responding to that, but there are others, I'm afraid, that uh, they, they were not really that receptive. So if you don't have, you have one side which is not receptive, then it's very difficult to have a genuine conversation. That's Dr. Panpei Cho from the Beijing-backed uh, Federation of Trade Unions uh, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today with Hugh Chiverton. And a little bit later in this half hour, we'll be hearing from Danny Giddings, an assistant professor at HKU Space, for his assessment of the march and still more news ahead. Lenovo has passed an American National Security Review for its acquisition of IBM's low-end server business. It means that the $2.3 billion deal will go forward. IBM says the conclusion of the review by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is good news for both IBM and Lenovo. Well, China is seeking to tighten up on illegal outflows of money across its borders. The clampdown could have a big effect on overseas real estate prices in places like the United States and Canada, which have been big beneficiaries of these fund flows coming from mainlanders. Macau casinos, among other assets, have also been beneficiaries. If the crackdown against leaks in capital controls continues, the effects could be felt globally. We're joined by Wei Gu, editor of China Wealth and Luxury at The Wall Street Journal. Wei, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So why is this uh, crackdown on outflows uh, taking place? Yeah, it's coming a little later than expected. Last year, where the China anti-corruption campaign has been going on for two, almost two years now, and the capital control basically has been pretty much where the government has been quite indulgent on people um, taking money across the border. So it does come late, but it just show that uh, the government is still uh, keen on is keen on this issue. I think the main reason is last year that was some outflows. As the economy get weaker, people were uncertain about the political outlook. So there were money started flowing offshore. If that becomes a trend, it could be quite damaging. I always get confused uh, when talking about this because on the one hand, you hear people say that uh, mainlanders, particularly wealthy people, have always been able to get around these rules. But then you see something like uh, the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect, which mm. indicates
states that mainlanders will be able to buy Hong Kong listed shares and and um, fund managers here can buy shares and it really beefs up the stock market so I mean obviously it must not be that easy to get money out of China no 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 it's not that easy uh, when we hear about people getting around with it it's people who are willing to take a risk so they do that through underground money exchange channels you can see these things uh, in Wan Chai and in Causeway Bay there are lots of these small shops that you put money, uh, you give them your account in China and you give them your account here and then they will help you transfer the money uh, matching with someone else who wanted to do the trade from the other direction. But there is no guarantee that these won't be cracked down because these were illegal. So what the government is doing is they were taking out the legal channels, for example, Bank of China, for example, the union pay cards. So these things people know that, well, it's the government or it's the official channel, there are loopholes. By doing so, they're not going to get into trouble. But now they have to take much bigger risk if they wanted to go with the underground channels. It must be having an effect because we do see uh, reduced revenues in Macau. A little bit trickier to try to get actual numbers on fewer homes being bought by, say, people from China. But what are you hearing about that uh, in terms of real estate? Which markets might be affected? Yeah. What I'm hearing is people who have um, agreed to buy and sign a contract, and now they are finding an issue to actually transfer the money abroad. And more people are using this as an excuse to not buy. I mean, for example, in Malaysia, there is this project by Country Garden, and some people have gone through Chinese tour buses, and they put down very little deposit, and they, they, they bought a home. But when they go back and they thought about it, they go, oh, gee, do I really want it a place in Malaysia? especially after that plane crash. So they are using money control as an excuse to say, I need to get out of this. Yeah, okay, so it can be used as an excuse too. Um, Is this part of the process of of slowly liberalizing the renminbi, or is it more a part of um, the crackdown against corruption by the president? Yeah, so two things is going on. One is the government wanted to liberalize the capital account. So um, so the larger direction is still allowing money to free to flow more freely. Just as you mentioned, Brian, the uh, Hong Kong-China connection, the, the through train system. Uh, the other trend going on is the government wanted these flows to be more regulated. Ideally, they want the SOEs and safe, the, um, the forex exchange manager, to lead the, the flow abroad so everything is under control by the government. They don't necessarily want the individuals, especially corrupted, corrupted officials, to move money abroad. So that's why they are trying to um, plug in these loopholes. We've heard a lot over the past 10 or 15, 20 years about how much money was rushing into China to do business. Uh, but do you think if there were no capital controls that there would be a case of capital flight? If there are two things going on. One is foreigners as well as some Chinese overseas Chinese are still eager to move money inside China because the economy is growing faster uh, and the, the return can be higher. And then you have the other direction of the people, uh, mainly Chinese residents, who have mostly their assets, almost 100% of their assets inside China. And uh, the bigger they are in terms of uh, wealth, the more concerned they are about not being able to diversify. And for these people, they care less 
about the return. They care more about safety of their assets. So that's why we see globally Chinese going through this U.S. immigration uh, programs being the biggest uh, source of uh, immigrants for the U.S. and buying home everywhere in Melbourne, in Vancouver, in Chicago. So you have really two sides. But the question is, which side is bigger? And that really depends on the future prospects of the Chinese economy and people's confidence in China. Does it feel like the economy is um, is recharging now to you? Um, just a final question, you know, just to take it more generally. Uh, does it feel like uh, the the economy kind of has seen the worst and is improving now? Or do you think that there's a danger of it sputtering further? Volatile, actually. Well, the recent, well, uh, over the summer, the data has been pretty strong, so people thought it's getting better. Um, but the latest month, July, was actually pretty poor. and we Especially the credit the- numbers. Yeah, exactly. The credit number and even the the home market is very important to watch because in my story, there's a chart that correlates money flows with the home prices. So we have seen uh, liberalization in terms of people who own multiple homes can start buying another flat in lots of Chinese cities. But uh, that hasn't really led to a rush into a rush back into properties. So the sort of fear is um, the people may be losing confidence in the property market and not being able to prices not being able to go up again. Okay, Wei, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Sure. Wei Gu, editor of China Wealth and Luxury at the Wall Street Journal. And you're listening to Money for Nothing. The time is now eight minutes before nine o'clock. Well, we mentioned earlier, it's been our big story this morning, uh, tens of thousands of people marching yesterday. They set out from Victoria Park going to Central to demonstrate against Occupy Central and the civil disobedience campaign. Somewhere between about 80,000 and 193,000 turned out, depending upon whether you look at the estimates from Hong Kong University POP program or the police or the organizers. And so we wanted to go back to get some response and some reaction. Earlier this morning in Hong Kong Today, Mike Weeks asked Danny Giddings, an assistant professor at HKU Space, for his assessment of the march yesterday. It was certainly a big march. Um, it's, it's, it's beggars belief that it's as big as either the organizers or, for that matter, the police claim. If you, if you look at the... Um, the aerial pictures comparing the, um, the, the the march yesterday with the July the 1st march. Um, you look at the time it took them. I, I know they say, oh, you can walk faster, but nonetheless, you look at the time it took them um, to clear the route. Um, it's clear the numbers weren't any, anything anything like they estimated, but nonetheless, it, it, it is an impressive turnout. And we, we have to say, in the past, um, the pro-democracy camp have had this themselves. I mean, the pro-establishment camp haven't organized large protests, essentially, in response. Um, and now it's no longer something that the um, pro-democracy can can claim as um, a monopoly of their own. So in that sense, it is very important. It is quite notable, as you say, the sort of the figures that were put out. I mean, the the organisers obviously with the top figure, 193,000, but the police coming in with the second highest figure, higher than the public opinion programme, which is normally the other way around, isn't it, for July the 1st? Yeah, it's very unfortunate because, I mean, after July 1st, a lot of people were accused the police of political policing and saying they were biased against the pro-democracy marchers and uh, several people were saying ahead of yesterday's march that this would be a litmus test of are the police um, still impartial handling these kind of protests and providing that kind and it wasn't just providing that kind of estimate the whole way they had although i wasn't on the march 
itself yesterday, but um, from the pictures, it's very clear the whole way they handled the protest. Um, it was much lighter, even though some there were members of the protest who were throwing eggs and so on, and so would it would seem to call for police action. But um, they didn't have these crash barriers alongside the protest protesters at all. So I think a lot of people are going to conclude that there are two standards when it comes to policing these protests: one that's useful pro-democracy marches and another that's useful marches like yesterday. It's kind of quite interesting, isn't it, that idea of neutrality because we also had just before the march, didn't we, the chief executive, C.Y. Leung, signing the uh, anti-Occupy Central petition by the Alliance for Peace and Democracy. Tong Shi also signed it. Uh, do you think it was right that they did that, that uh, they're just saying that the law needs to be respected or do you think this is, uh, they're showing definite favouritism? Well, they're showing different definite favouritism, but I have less problem with that because they are political officials. Um, the one person who really shouldn't sign, the Secretary for Justice, who would be um, involved in handling any prosecutions, well, did immediately say it's not appropriate for me to do so. Um, so I, I think um, we can't be surprised if political officials, um, uh, especially the chief executive, do actually take a stance on political issues. News analysis there from Danny Giddings, assistant professor at HKU Space. In other news, an Ebola quarantine center has been attacked and looted by a mob in the Liberian capital. Some people being monitored for signs of the virus escaped the facility in Monrovia. Most have now been found and taken to the city's main hospital. The BBC's Will Ross says Liberia seems to be the most chaotic of the West African nations that have been hit by the Ebola outbreak. Well, we understand a group of uh, angry men attacked this quarantine centre um, where between 29 and 30 patients were were being monitored. It's not clear whether all of those people had Ebola or whether any of them did, but they were certainly being quarantined there um, to check for signs of Ebola. And then we are told that uh, uh, this angry mob went into the centre, looted it, took away mattresses and other equipment, which of course would have been a pretty risky thing to do in the first place. And then of course there was a lot of alarm because there were reports that all of these patients um, had got away. They'd left the centre. But since then, um, the uh, Liberian government minister the assistant health minister um, has uh, told the BBC that the 29 to 30 patients were all relocated and admitted um, at uh, a different uh, treatment centre in the main hospital in Monrovia. But it's not the first time that people have um, left the isolation centres either on their own accord or somebody's broken in and, and people have, have, have left because the place has been attacked. So very worrying signs in Liberia, which does seem to be pretty much the most chaotic of the countries affected by the Ebola outbreak. BBC's Will Ross reporting. The US Attorney General Eric Holder has authorized a second post-mortem examination on Michael Brown. Brown is the black Missouri teenager whose death at the hands of a police officer a week ago sparked violent protests. An initial autopsy the day after the shooting concluded he had died of gunshot wounds. The BBC's Tom Esselmont explains why a second autopsy is needed. Well, the first autopsy was carried out by the state uh, at the state level um, and now after repeated calls from the family of Michael Brown, the teenager who was shot dead by a police officer more than a week ago, uh, there is to be a second autopsy, and that has been called for or has been ordered by the Attorney General, and it will be taken, it will, it will be carried out by the Department of Justice, which means it will be a, a federal level autopsy. 
Um, now, we don't have any more details than that, really, but I think uh, it goes some way to show just how uh, seriously the investigation into his uh, death is being taken by the authorities, and not least Jay Nixon, who the governor of Missouri, laying bare his frustration at the release of those CCTV images, allegedly showing Michael Brown uh, stealing from a shop in the moments before he died, uh, a sentiment, I think, that's reflected by many people in Ferguson, some of whom uh, took to the streets in defiance of a curfew last night, uh, some of whom who looted and protested again, and I think, therefore, you know, really underlining just how, uh, how big the task is for the authorities to try and, you know, get people to remain calm in the coming nights as things uh, progress. And that reporting by the BBC's Tom Esselmont. Uh, the time is coming up to 9 o'clock. Uh, we'll just leave you with a couple of final numbers. Uh, looking at markets, uh, seem to have moved to the upside uh, during the first hour of trading. So looks like it could be a slightly uh, risk-on or bullish day. Again, we mentioned earlier that uh, Lenovo has passed uh, American National Security Review for its acquisition of IBM's server business. And so that means the $2.3 billion deal will go forward. One of the things we'll be looking at out for a little bit later this morning. We'll be looking at the China July property prices that will be released at 9.30 this morning. So in the weather today, it looks like a very nice day, mainly fine and hot. Some chance of isolated showers uh, coming later in the day. And uh, the maximum temperature today should be up around 32 to 33 degrees. And the humidity level is up around 70 to 90 percent. So the news is next. And after that, Morning Brew right here on Radio 3. 